0: Now, after our study last time in the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis, I'm sure that many of you came to the conclusion that I had made a boo-boo when I said that Jacob's life changed at Peniel, that when he came there to the brook Jabbok, actually we don't see too much change because of what takes place in the 34th chapter. Well, that is quite true, but there was a change that took place. I hesitate to call it a crisis because I'm afraid that this matter of a crisis experience has been overdrawn by a great many. In fact, I find there are some folk that feel like if you don't have a second experience, that you just haven't had anything well the fact of the matter is that's not true some have a wonderful crisis experienced Dwight L Moody did and I'm sure that many of us in our lives can turn back to that but there are those that cannot or do not and have never mentioned it as being something very important in their lives but actually when this man came to Peniel Why, a tremendous thing happened to him. And I think probably as we get into the 35th chapter, I should mention this. All the way from the beginning of the life of Jacob until Peniel, the thing that happened in his life was the rise of self, the assertion of the flesh. That's Jacob, and nothing but that. What really happened at Peniel was the fall of self, and a tremendous fall of self there. I tell you, he went down like a deflated tire. He'd been pumped up like a balloon all of his life until he got to Peniel, and then the Lord put the pin in the balloon, and he went down to practically nothing. But actually, there was not faith in his life. Now, that, I think, is what the 34th chapter evidences. Now, I think that many folk that have said, there have been expositors, say that it was a tragic thing for Jacob to stop in Shalem. And I must say that I have to go along with that partially. But I have a question to ask, and the question is this. Was he ready for Bethel? Was he ready for the experiences that God was going to give him. No, I think that what you see in the 34th chapter and the tragic things that took place are the result of a man who'd been walking by the flesh. Then there is that fall, the deflation of self, but not faith. He did not have faith to go on to Bethel, to Bethel. You can call that either way you want to. But now he stops at Shalem in the land of Shechem, and these tragic things took place in his life, and it reveals the fact that this man was not actually a leader in his own family. He was not taking the proper place that he should have. He was no spiritual giant by any means. And to have those 12 boys to herd was really a real job. And I want to say that that would take a real spiritual giant to control them. But this man, Jacob, was not prepared. But after that tragic event, this man now is beginning to see the hand of God in his life. And now he makes the decision that he probably should have made beforehand. And it reveals that inside this family that there was taking place something that was indeed tragic, indeed. And so the tragedy at Shechem is that as soon as Esau had turned his back and started home, Jacob takes his family down to Shechem. It's a tragic move. Jacob is still depending upon his own cleverness. Dinah was raped. And Simeon and Levi, her full brothers, went into the city of Shechem to the prince who was responsible. Though he wanted to marry her, they murdered him. And the sons of Jacob conducted a slaughter that would make a gang shooting in Chicago look pretty tame. When they came home, Jacob says, You've made my name to smell among the people of my land. And now the fact of the matter is, He wasn't ready for Bethel, and my question is, where else could he go? And after all, this man had flocks and herds, and there was good pasture land where he stopped at Shalem. This man now had a great lesson to learn, and he's beginning to see that chickens do come home to roost, and that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Now, I turn to the 35th chapter of Genesis, and I hope you have your Bible open there, and also that you have our notes and outlines. If you do not have them, we do have a set for you and love to send them to you. Now, I'm reading verse 1, chapter 35 of Genesis. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Now, God is calling this man back to Bethel. I have a little book. The title of it is, Back to Bethel. I attempt to cover a great deal of the life of Jacob, and especially dealing with this experience that he had at Peniel, And then the change that took place when he went there. Now, the fact of the matter is, he's now, after this sad experience, he's prepared to go. You see, he didn't have faith to move out before. Now, will you notice verse 2, Jacob now begins to take the leadership. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. Now, there are several things that they're told to do here. They're, first of all, to put away the strange gods, and we are almost shocked at that. You will recall that when Jacob fled with Rachel and Leah, that Rachel slipped out the family gods, that is, these little images... She sat on them, on the camel, that luggage that was to go on the camel's back. She just crawled up on top of it and sat down, because underneath were these little images. Now, I would assume, since it was the home of Jacob, he knew of the living and true God. God had called him. You would think that he would say that when he did find out, and he did not know at the time she had taken them, he was very honest when he told Laban that, that God's those little images weren't in his entourage at all. That's probably the one time up to then he told the truth. He really didn't know, but they were there. Now, when they were discovered, I think that probably we'd all assume, well, Jacob got rid of them, but he didn't get rid of them. And we find this entire family are worshiping these images. This man Jacob, now for the first time, and he's the one to take the leadership, he says, now let's get rid of these false gods, these strange gods, and they're false gods. That's the first thing you've got to put away, that which is wrong. There is today too many folk that six days a week they are serving some other god, and on Sunday They serve the Lord. We have a lot of fundamental believers like that, friends. They have their strange gods. And then they wonder why on Sunday their service in the church and why it's not a thrilling experience. Well, friends, you're going to have to put away your strange gods. I don't know what yours might be, but whatever they are, it could be covetousness. I tell you, there's many a good fundamental businessman today It's out after every dollar he can get. And I tell you, he gives more devotion to getting the dollar than he does to serving the Lord on Sunday. And he wonders what's wrong with his spiritual life. If you're going to come back to Bethel, where you met God at the beginning, then, friends, you've got to put away those things that are wrong. Then he says here, Jacob says, and be clean, Now, that for the believer today means confession of sins. You have to deal with sin in your life. You can't come in on Sunday and ignore the week that's just passed. After all, you take a physical bath and use a deodorant. And today we have spiritual BO in our churches because there's no confession of the sin, the cleansing, and that's the cleansing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's First John 1, 9. There must be the confession. And he'll forgive, but they must be confessed. Then do you notice something else? He says here, change your garments. Get rid of the old garments. Now, garments speak in Scripture of habits. In fact, they do today. We hear of somebody having a riding habit, and football players have a uniform. That's the habit they use. And the child of God's dress should some way mirror who he is, who he belongs to. Do you wear the habits of the Lord? Can you be detected in business or in school or in the neighborhood as being a little different. Your life is a little different. You're wearing a habit. The day that this man went back to Bethel, he started living for God. And up to then, I don't think so. He says, let's go back to Bethel. And that's the thing that we must do. Listen to him now in verse 3. And let us arise and go up to Bethel And I will make there an altar unto God. Abraham had made the altar. Isaac had. Now Jacob is, and thank God for that. He'll have a witness now for God. Who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. Now that is the thing that he remembered that when he was running away from home as a young man, homesick and lonesome, he'd come to Bethel, and God had been faithful to him. God says, I will be faithful to you. And Now the years have gone by, and God had been faithful to him. Now God says, you've got to go back to Bethel. You have to go back where you started. You have to begin there. I'm of the opinion that a great many People today need to recognize that the years that we spend in living a shoddy, shabby Christian life, just waste of time, absolutely waste of time, you find that the children of Israel, you'll recall, God called them to get out of Egypt and get into the land. And if you'll notice, God appeared to them, and told them to go into the land. They didn't go in. Forty years they wandered around. God appeared to Joshua. He says, now go into the land. Picks up right where he left off, where he told them. They've wasted 40 years. How many people today are wasting their lives as Christians? My, the tremendous spiritual lessons that are here for us. And I think one of the reasons they're here for us some of us, now I don't know about you, but some of us are just like Jacob, you see. And that's the reason they're so applicable to us today. And thank God he says he's the God of Jacob. I love that. If he'll be the God of Jacob, he'll be the God of J. Vernon McGee also. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. This is a is a great encouragement to us today. Now, will you notice what happened? He's taken over in his home, which is interesting. Verse 4, "...they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears." And let me pause and say that earrings were associated with worship in that day. There's a great deal said in Scripture about that. I can't stop to develop that sort of thing, but... May I say there's so many wonderful, precious truths that are in the Word of God that even in a five-year program, friends, you can't dig it all out. After we get through working this mine, there'll be a great deal of gold and precious stones left here, I can assure you. And all their earrings which were in their ears, that identified them as idolatrous, and they're going to get rid of them. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. He got rid of them. They're not stored away. They're buried. They must be put away because it's going to be now a new life. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel. He and all the people that were with him. You remember, that place was called Luz before Jacob changed the name to Bethel. And the people in that day knew it as Luz, not as Bethel. We know it today as Bethel. And he built there an altar. He called the place El-Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. You remember, that was the name he gave to it before. Now here's a very interesting sidelight, but Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak and the name of it was Alone Bakuth. Now the important thing about this is that we assume, uh, since Deborah was with Jacob at this time, that Rebecca had died. And it's not only a natural assumption, it's a very real thing, that she had died. Poor Jacob never saw his mother again. That part is not as tragic as she never saw him again. She just sent him away for a little while, you know. And the burial of this nurse means that when she died, the nurse had apparently brought a message and had come to stay with Jacob. And now she dies. Verse 9, and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paden Aaron and blessed him. Now you see, all those years God had been trying to deal with this man. Now he picks up right where he had met him when he came to Bethel as a young man wasted years. Those years he spent down there with Uncle Laban in many ways were wasted years. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I'm God Almighty. It's what he told Abraham, you remember. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations, shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I'll give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. The Lord considers that pretty important property, by the way, because this now is the third time. First to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then now to Jacob. And each one of these men, the Lord had to tell them about it two or three times. In fact, Abraham many times. Now we are told, verse 14, "...and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone." poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. Here is the first mention of a drink offering. Now, when we get to the book of Leviticus, five offerings are given there, but not a drink offering. In fact, no instructions given about it at all, but it's mentioned. Evidently, this is one of the oldest offerings, and it has a very wonderful meaning for the believer today drink offering was just poured on the other offerings, it went up in steam. And that's the way Paul told the Philippians he wanted his life to be just poured out like a drink offering. And verse 15, Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. Verse 16, And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Erath and Rachel travail, and she had hard labor. Now, Rachel had one son, but now she has a second son. Came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. Came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. What a wonderful thing that is, that is, not the death of Rachel, but the way this took place. She says, call him son of my Sarah." And Jacob looked down at him and said, I've lost my lovely Rachel, and this little fellow looks like him, so I'll just call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And he was partial to the sons of Rachel. Rachel died, was buried in the way to Erath, which is Bethlehem. And she's buried there today. The tomb is there. I have several pictures I took of it. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And that is at the time Moses wrote this, but it's there to this very day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of edom Now, what you have here is just the listing now, the sons of Jacob by these different ones. Actually, Joseph and Benjamin were the two boys that were outstanding. The others, I want to tell you, friends, they just didn't turn out well. And again, it proves the fact, well, what God had said, that the thing that had been done, it was done by Uncle Laban, of course, but Jacob went along with it, that he does not bless plurality of wives. The family of Jacob ought to illustrate that. Now we have this record given here, verse 29, And Isaac gave up the ghost and died, was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. I think this was the only other time these two boys met at the burial of their father, Isaac. Now we'll have to leave off there today, but it brings us to the end of this chapter and next time, we're going to take a last look at Esau. Now, today, we come in our study to the 36th chapter of the book of Genesis. And it deals entirely with Esau, the entire chapter. And the Spirit of God follows this pattern all the way through this book. In fact, it's followed all the way through the Scripture. The seed that is being followed is Christ. Paul makes that clear. The seed's not many, but one, Christ. And so as you go through the Scripture, beginning actually with Adam and Eve and Seth, and then come on down to Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob. The method and the pattern that is followed, God will give the rejected line first, and it's dismissed as far as any purpose is concerned in the Scripture. And then the other line is picked up after that. So that is the place and the purpose of the 36th chapter. Now, when we left off last time, we were talking in the 35th chapter about the death of Rachel. And I'm sure that many folk who have heard me speak on this section before have said, well, you certainly failed to give your usual eulogy of Rachel. And that's true. I didn't tell the truth. I didn't have time. But I do want to come back to make a connection here that's going to be very important later on. Rachel was the one fine thing in the life of Jacob, even in those years in Pate Aram that are sorted in so many ways where there's so much evidence of just the flesh of self. But he loved Rachel, no question about that. And he was willing to do most anything for her. He was totally devoted to her. He permitted her, for instance, to keep those images that she'd taken from her father. I don't think Leah would have got by with it, or anyone else would have. But he was indulgent with her. He loved her. And she had this boy, first Joseph. Then she had this boy, Benjamin. And it was at the birth of Benjamin that she died. His life meant her death in this particular connection. And it was a great heartbreak to Jacob. To begin with, the other ten boys were no joy to him at all. God reminded him, I think, every day and 24 hours every day, that it was sinful to have more than one wife. He didn't need all of them. That wasn't God's method. God will overrule, of course. He does in your life, friends, and He does mine. Thank God He'll overrule. But it doesn't mean God approved of this at all. In fact, these facts reveal He didn't approve of it, and especially what happened to Joseph. Now, He loved Joseph and Benjamin, Very frankly, the other boys were jealous of that. He should not have shown such partiality to Joseph, because he had experienced that in his own home, and he was the one that his own father more or less pushed aside, and he knew the trouble it had caused, and he should not have practiced it, but he did. And I ordinarily don't defend Jacob, but after all, when Rachel died, and she says, Call this boy Benone. he's the son of my sorrow. And I think Jacob would have said, Yes, he's the son of Rachel's Sarah." But when he looked down at the little fellow, and I guess he looked like Rachel, probably had her eyes, or reminded him of Rachel, he said, I can't call him. He's not the son of my sorrow. He's the only one I've got to lean on now. He's the son of my right hand. He's my walking stick. He's my staff. I'm going to lean on him. And you'll find out this is very important later on, because this is part of the great sorrow this man was called to go through later on. All of this around one fact, and that is God did not approve of this. And God does not approve of that which is wrong in our lives, friends. We think we get by with it, but we actually do not get by with it at all. And Jacob did not get by with it. But his lovely Rachel now is gone, buried at Bethlehem. And this chapter, 35, that we had last time, did you notice that it is a chapter that is made prominent by deaths? First, the death of Deborah, the maid of Rebekah. And then in that, the suggestion of the death of Rebecca herself, and now the death of lovely Rachel. Then the sons of Jacob are mentioned here, and he had no joy in them. And lo and behold, it closes with the death of Isaac. So that here is a chapter that the most prominent thing in it are the deaths and the funerals. these different ones, three in this chapter. Now, when we come to chapter 36 of Genesis, we now turn to Esau, and it's all given over to Esau. It's almost humorous in places, by the way. And may I say that this would not be too interesting for a great many of us. This would be a marvelous study for someone who wanted to follow through through on these names, follow through on those that came from them. You find some of the names that are mentioned here that are names you hear out there on that great Arabian desert today. We've all heard of Omar the tent maker and he belonged out there. We've heard of Timon, Kenaz and Zipho. Well, you read the 15th verse here. And you find out all of them are mentioned. Here's the family of Esau. That's where they are, out in that desert. Now, they settled in the land of Edom. And Edom is south and east of the Dead Sea. It's in a mountainous area. And the capital of Edom, the rock-hewn city of Petra, is there today. Prophecy is given concerning that. Remarkable prophecy that stands fulfilled. In fact, it's fulfilled there today. God said it would be just exactly as it is. It's a prophecy. We'll see when we get to it. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all mention this particular section and this particular nation. Now, this nation came from Esau, and three times... In this chapter, it's made very clear to us that Esau is the father of Edom, and that they are synonymous terms. If you look at verse 8, for instance, "...thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir." Esau is Edom. Somebody says, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is just simply this. When you look at this boy Esau, as we first met him in the family of Isaac, and we see him there, the outdoor, rugged type, athletic type, fine-looking boy, by the way, I'm sure that our snap judgment would be, my, there's a fine boy. And outwardly, it might look that way, but if there ever was a man of the flesh, he's the man of the flesh. Several years ago, a Christian girl talked to me about she'd met a fine-looking young man. And tell the truth, they both were fine-looking young people. She had been born in China, not of missionaries. Father was in the oil business and made very wealthy. And she had met this young man. He was a bank clerk. And I was a bank clerk when I was a young fella, and I knew something about it. I knew one thing. He was a very poor boy. And I know a lot of bank clerks look around for a good marriage, especially among customers that have daughters that the customer has money in the bank. So this boy had met this girl, and he was a handsome brute, fine-looking, rugged type. To me, he looked like Esau. I have a notion Esau looked very much like it. And she was a Christian girl had been led to the Lord by missionaries out in China years ago. And so she insisted she's going to marry him. And I said I would not marry him. I had counsel with him. She said, I believe that he'll come to the Lord. I talked with him. He had no notion of coming to the Lord. He was wanting to marry that girl. She was beautiful and had money. And he was a man of the flesh. And she married him. And I didn't perform it, I can assure you. In fact, she was provoked with me at the time. But later on, she came back, and she was telling me they got a divorce. She said, I never met a person in my life, Dr. McGee, that was so given over to the things that were secular and carnal and of the flesh. She said, I never dreamed that there could be any person anywhere that in his entire life never had a high, noble, spiritual, wonderful thought. Why, she said he was as crude as they come, that he gave a good impression on the surface. She said he would open the door of the car for me to get in. He was quite lovely when we were courting, but he was as crude as any person I've ever met. Well, may I say to you, that's Esau. And when you see saw in the family there, maybe you, if you were an attractive young lady and he wanted to date you, chances are you date him because he was attractive. But he was a man of the flesh. That's who he is. Now, somebody might want to argue with me about that and argue with God about it. You made a mistake in setting this man aside. Well, God says, and he always protects himself, over in the little book of Obadiah, you find that Esau is unveiled. Now Esau is Edom. That's what Moses says here. Esau is Edom. All right? Go down the centuries. In fact, you'll have to go down over a thousand years. And one little Esau now is about a hundred thousand Edomites. Each one of them is a little Esau. <laughs> now take a look at the nation and you see what came from Esau. It is like putting Esau under the microscope. Or, as a photographer out here in Hollywood told me about a picture of mine, he says, I want to blow it up. I didn't know what he really meant by that at first. I thought that it was so bad he wanted to put a stick of dynamite under it. But what he meant was he wanted to take a small one and make it a great big picture. All right, if you want to see a real picture of Esau, Go to Obadiah. And what do you see there? Again, a nation filled with pride. And God says, though you be lifted up like the eagle, and you make your nest yonder in the tops of the mountains, God says, I'll bring you down. And what is pride of heart that they were guilty of? Well, it's the declaration of independence of a soul. that says, I can live without God and I don't need God. That's Esau. And you'll have to wait till we get over there. And then when you come to the last book of the Old Testament, God says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And God never said that till you go down over a thousand years. Now, God knew it at the beginning, but you didn't know it, and I didn't know it. And when they worked their way out in history, you can be sure God's accurate. Esau turned out. And so three times in this chapter, we're told Esau is Edom. And he says that three times, so we make sure that we get it. But that's not the funny part of that. In fact, that's not funny. But this is. Let me read verse 1. Now, these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. Well, even verse 1 says it. That would make four times. Now we're told Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And then here they go. I'm not going through this exercise of just pronouncing names. And we're told, verse six, and Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his house and his cattle, all his beasts, all his substance which he had got in the land of Canaan. And he went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob, for their riches were more than that they might dwell together. And the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Now, you remember Abraham and Lot had that same problem. In other words, there'd not be enough grazing land for them. Each one of them had too many cattle. And therefore, Esau left the promised land, and he left it on his own. But circumstances, the economic situation, forced him to do that. Now, verse 8, where we began a moment ago, "...thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir, Esau as Edom." Now, it tells where he went, and I have already located that place for you. Now, we follow that family... And if you follow them down, verse 12, And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. Now, here's the beginning of the Amalekites. Now, all those tribes that are there in the desert, and they have come down through the centuries. They pushed out in many directions. After the fall of Carthage and after the prominence of the church in those early years in North Africa. Actually, the strongest center of the church at one time was in North Africa. But all those tribes, they pushed across North Africa. You see, they all belong to this family. They come from Hagar and Abraham. Then they come from Esau. And there's been the intermarriage in the different tribes. And that's where you get all these ides the Amalekites and the Perizzites and all of them. And you have all those Arab tribes out there today. Actually, they belong to the same family that Abraham belonged to and that Israel belongs to. I said to an Arab that I met, he expressed hostility to the nation Israel, and he didn't like something I had said in a service. And he's a Christian Arab, too. And he told me how he hated the nationists and all that. And I just said to him, I said, Yeah, but he's your brother. <laughs> Believe me, that did antagonize him. He said, I have no relation with him at all. I said, But you do. You belong to the same stock. You're both Semitic peoples. And I said, You're a Semite as much as they are. Well... He had to admit that was true, you see. This chapter happens to be very important. After all, the Spirit of God used a great deal of printer's ink here to tell you about this. And you know I haven't got down to that part, which is humorous yet. And we better get that. And here it is. It's verse 15. These were dukes of the sons of Esau. And you have here Duke Omer, Duke Zepho, Duke. Kenaz, Duke Korah, Duke Gatam, and Duke Amalek. Where in the world did they get these dukes? Well, here's the beginning of nobility. They just assumed it. Each one of became a duke. And believe me, here we go. And it's not just a nickname. They mean business by it. This is the beginning of nobility now. Where did it begin? In the family of Esau. And again, we come back to it in verse 19, that is this one statement, these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their dukes. My, they got dukes in the family now. And a great many people in this country can trace their ancestry right back to royalty. You wonder if anybody came from over there from those who ran stoas and worked in vineyards and made pottery and ran a shoe shop. Everybody seems to have come from royalty. Well, I'll tell you, Esau turned out quite a few of them. And if you think that is going pretty far, he went farther than that. Will you notice verse 31? And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. The business of having kings. I don't think this was God's arrangement at all to put a king over them like this. But here they go. They have kings over them also. And isn't this quite interesting? This was before the children of Israel had kings. Where did they get the idea? They got the idea from these people. In fact, that's the thing they told Samuel later on. They said, we want kings just like our neighbors round about us. And they could have said, our brother down here, the Edomites, they happen to have kings, and we'd like to have kings also. This was the thing that they did. We find in this section here many things that have to do with certain tribes that actually could be followed today for anyone that would be interested in following the study of anthropology or the study of ethnology. Here they are. And that lends importance to a chapter like this that goes back, gives a family history probably farther back than anyone else could go. And this is the rejected line. immediately after this, we'll take this line that's going to lead to Christ. Let me read verse 40 again. And these are the names of the dukes that came of Esau, according to their families, after their places, by their names. Here's some more dukes, friends. Duke Timnah, Duke Alva, Duke My When they got together, don't you know that that was quite a matter of... uh, bowing and scraping to each other and introducing each other. I want you to meet my brother here. He's Duke Alva. I want you to meet my friend here. He's Duke Timnah. We're dukes, and then some of them were kings, and I doubt whether you could even get in to meet them. But now notice how this chapter closes. We have here Duke Magdiel, Duke Iram. These be the dukes of Edom according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Now, this is down in the land of Edom. And now this chapter closes as it began. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. We see the working out of that in the book of Obadiah and then in the last book of the Old Testament. This is quite remarkable, friend and something you just can't bypass. We'll have to leave off there. We'll pick up at the next chapter next time, my beloved. Now today, friends, we come to the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis, and when we do, we resume the story of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we come to the fourth one, Joseph. And from here all the way through, the book of Genesis will be centered upon Joseph. Now, it is true we are dealing with the family of Jacob, and that's what's resumed in this chapter. But the story of Joseph has begun here. And somebody might say, well, there's more tension given here to Joseph than to Abraham or Isaac, or to anything else. There's certainly more of this than is even given to the first 11 chapters in Genesis. How do you explain that? Well, I think there's several reasons. I would suggest two. One is the life of Joseph is a good and honorable life. We are told in Scripture, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise... Think on these things. Now, God wants us to have this that is good and virtuous and great before us. And Joseph's life is just that. Then there's a second reason here, and this is a great reason. Nowhere in the New Testament is Joseph given to us as a type of Christ. Yet no one is more like Christ in his person and experiences than Joseph. All of this cannot be accidental. Now, we're going to see that as we go through his life. And I think that I've got listed in a book somewhere. In fact, the matter is, it's in our book on Genesis. At least 20 some odd parallels. And there's more than 20. I suspect there must be around 30 And we'll mention that later on when we get farther into his story. But now you'll recall that last time we almost got a laugh. And there's a lot of laughs in the Bible, by the way. It depicts human life. And there's a lot of humor. God has a sense of humor. And we met all the dukes and kings and all the royalty in the family of Esau. And where in the world did they come from? Well, they took these titles. And men have been going for titles and... That sort of thing from that day to this. Every now and then I get a letter from some brother. I always feel like he's way out in left field that rebukes me for having a doctor's degree. Well, I earned mine. I don't mind having it, but I'll be honest with you. I sweat blood and tears to get the degrees that I have hanging in my study. But I wouldn't give you five cents for them if I didn't have them. The thing is that It's what they represent, and titles today are quite meaningless, really. They are, and it's not the office, it's the individual that makes it. great many people say they respect the office of president, but not the president. Well, God have mercy on America if we've come to that, because it's the person who makes the office, and we don't have a man in there that makes it in a way that we can respect him. And frankly, it's been difficult for the past two decades, uh, maybe a little longer than that, in fact, three decades, to have men in the office that you can respect. And the office has certainly suffered, but the man makes the office. And so these fellows all had to get them a title. And if you belong to the family of Esau, you'd need a title because of the type of folk that they really were. We're going to pick up now the family Of Jacob again, and there were several things that we did not call attention to that were in this chapter, 35. One is this place of Bethlehem, first time it's mentioned, and here's where Rachel died, and we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. Well, if Jacob was here to sing it with us, I can assure you several things. One thing is, he'd never think of a birth there. He'd think of a death. He'd think of beautiful Rachel died there. Then, after that, he would remember this is where Benjamin was born. You see, Benjamin was born in the same place that Jesus was born. That brings this place of Bethlehem now onto the page of Scripture. And the amazing thing is not that Bethlehem was picked as the birthplace of the Messiah, the thing that's amazing is that how could it ever have been fulfilled, and that's the wonder of it all. We didn't call any attention to the sin of Reuben that's mentioned here, because that'll come before us again, and we need to keep that in mind. And we recognize now that we have left the family of Esau. Now we are going to follow on through in the family of of Jacob, that is the one, and Joseph now becomes all-prominent here before us. And we're going to follow his story. So let's pick up now chapter 37, and this is the method of the Spirit of God. That when the rejected line is given, then he returns to take the line that's going to lead to Christ, and that story is resumed. And so we have here this story of Jacob. And I begin reading at chapter 37, verse 1, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. Now he's moved down, apparently, south of Bethlehem, and he's come down to Hebron. That's where, you'll recall, that Abraham had made his home. And so he comes to this place of fellowship, communion with God. And verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, we had the generations of Esau. These are the generations of Jacob. But we only have this boy Joseph mentioned. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah. And with the son of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. And I want to tell you, that bunch of boys that Jacob had, they were problem children, every one of them with the exception of Joseph and Benjamin. And it took these men a long time to really learn anything at all. And the emphasis now, you see, is going to be switched from actually Jacob to Joseph. We'll follow him down to the land of Egypt. He was 17 years old when this incident took place that's recorded here. Just a teenage boy who was one of the youngest, you see, out there feeding the flock. Benjamin is too young to be out there. And this boy, he came home and told his father their evil report. And the boys didn't like it. Of course they didn't like it. They, I'm sure, called him a tattletale. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Now Jacob should have learned the lesson in his own home that to play a favorite will cause trouble in a family. His own father had favored the elder brother, and this boy knew what it was to be discriminated against, and now he practices the very same thing. And, of course, we begin to excuse him because we say, well, after all, it was Rachel who really was his wife, who really was the one he loved, one fine thing in his life. And this boy is a fine boy, as well as Benjamin, And he loved this boy. Well, that's all true, by the way. But he shouldn't have bought him that coat of many colors. Now, the coat of many colors, that may not be the accurate translation. There are those that translate this coat with sleeves in it. You see, in that day, putting sleeves in coats just wasn't the popular thing to do. It wasn't the latest style. Hart, Schaffner, and Marx were not making coats like that then with sleeves in them. And it was difficult. After all, the thing they did was to take a long strip of goods and the middle way is in it, they'd take about 12 feet or maybe 10 feet, and they would put a hole right in the middle of it, stick their head through it, half of it drop down in front and half in the back, Then they'd just tie it together, or they'd sew it together. And that was the close of the day. They didn't have sleeves. Apparently, this was a garment that had sleeves in it. That, of course, set him apart, but maybe not quite as much as if it had many colors. And verse 4, when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. And they certainly did hate him. They could not speak peaceably unto him. Now, we look into this family again, and you notice the strife that's been in all of these families. I tell you, I don't care what family it is. Sin today, friends, not only ruins lives, it ruins families. Not only ruins families, it'll ruin a community. It'll ruin a city. It's ruining our cities today. They say this thing and that thing and another thing is ruining our cities. Just one thing. God calls it sin, S-I-N, sin. And it ruins nations. And so this boy, Joseph, he's being discriminated by both the father and now the brethren. The father loves him, the brethren hate him. And verse 5, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Anything that Joseph did certainly didn't bring the love of his brethren for him. And he said unto them, Here, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. Now, I have a feeling that this 17-year-old boy at this time, who has been kept, I'm sure as long as Rachel lived, on her apron string, very much like Jacob had been reared at first. Generally, when a fellow like this who's been raised tied to his mama's apron string, does finally break loose from the apron string, and he's apt to go any direction. In fact, he's apt to go every direction. Jacob did, but Joseph won't. Joseph is a remarkable individual. Now, how do you explain, though, this conduct here? Why would he go and tattle on his brethren when he knew it would incur their hatred? And why would he tell them this dream? Well, I think that there's one explanation for it. He's been tied to his mama's apron string so long, he doesn't know how bad this world can be. And he doesn't know how bad his brothers can be. I'm of the opinion he's a rather gullible boy at this time. And you'll find out that it took him a long time to find out about the ways of the world. And when he did, he probably knew as much about the ways of the world as anyone later on, but not at this time. He's a 17-year-old boy raised as he was raised in that day, and a favorite of his father. His father now centers all of the affection that he had for Rachel. And you can understand there's a tremendous background here and how human we all are. Old Jacob is a young man, went out there and saw Rachel. Boy, he fell in love with her, love at first sight. She was a beautiful thing. He had to work 14 years for her. And then there was several years before a child was born. And finally, Joseph is born. And my, Rachel's gone now. So what does he do? He just centers all of his affection in this boy. He shouldn't have done it. He's got more of them around there. But he centers his affection in this boy here. But listen at the dream that he has. And he just tells it right out. I'm reading verse 7 now. He says, For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose, and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. They asked probably in a sneering, cynical way, you really think that you're going to reign over us? And they hated him, though, because he had this dream. But that doesn't end the dreams. He has another one. He dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream Moa, And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother, thy brethren, indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee in the earth? And he told this dream. They understood what he was talking about then. Those who study the book of Revelation today don't seem to know when they find a woman mentioned in the twelfth chapter of Revelation with the sun, moon, and stars under her feet, that that means the nation Israel. These brethren understood that it's the sons of Israel that we're talking about, and it's the nation Israel as it was there at the beginning. You see, what's given in Genesis is like a bud to a flower, and that opens up as you go through Scripture. Now here's one it's not going to open up till you get to the book of Revelation. It's a late bloomer, by the way, but it's going to open up there. And we ought to understand what is being said there and not attempt to guess. Don't need to guess when it's made this clear here. Old Jacob understood it exactly. He says, Why does this mean that your father, your mother, your brethren are going to bow down to you? Well, This boy, all he could say, well, this is what I dreamed, and this is it. Verse 11, And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Brethren just dismissed it. They paid no attention to it. They thought this was certainly in the realm of impossibility. And far as those ten brethren were concerned, not one of them was going to bow down to him. "...and his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem." Now, you see, Jacob is moved way down around Hebron, and these boys are keeping the sheep. Now, they've gone way north. They're up about as far north of Jerusalem as they lived at Hebron, south of Jerusalem. I don't know how far it would be, 30 or 40 miles each way, so that you've got about 80 miles And they probably got as far as a hundred miles from home. So you can see that they grazed their sheep over that entire area. And they took the flock way up to Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. Joseph said, Yes, I'll go. He's very obedient to his father, you notice. And he said to him, "'Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again.' So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem." You see, all the way from Hebron up to Shechem. "'And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. When he got up by Shechem, he began to look around everywhere.'" That's rugged terrain up there, by the way. And this boy, Joseph, he couldn't find them. The man asked him, saying, "'What seekest thou?' I think the man said, "'Well, you passed my tent here half a dozen times. Who are you looking for?' And he said, "'I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks.' And the man said, "'They are departed hence, for I heard them say, "'Let us go to Dothan.' And Joseph went after his brethren,' and found them in Dothan. Now, Dothan is a long ways north of Shechem, by the way. Dothan is right near the valley of Esdraelon. This is where they had gone. And so Joseph went up there, and he found them. And when they saw him, afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. Now, they certainly hated him. And they say, now we're going to get rid of him. After all, they're probably hundred miles from home. And they say, we're going to get rid of him now. And they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. Well, here comes the dreamer. And we're going to see about those dreams, whether they'll come to pass or not. We're going to leave off our story at that particular place. But let me begin even here to call your attention to the comparison of this boy to the Lord Jesus. The analogy, you just can't miss it. To begin with, the birth of this boy Joseph, you see, was practically miraculous. In fact, it was miraculous in his case. And the Lord Jesus is virgin-born. His is miraculous. Joseph was loved by his father. The Lord Jesus was loved by his father. He said, this is my beloved son. And Joseph had the coat of many colors that set him apart, and Christ was separate from sinners. Joseph announced he was to rule over his brethren, the Lord Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. And you remember, they ridiculed him. In fact, that was put in ridicule on his cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Notice the analogy. And Joseph was sent to his brethren, and Jesus came to his brethren, first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Joseph was hated by his brethren without a cause. The Lord Jesus was hated by his brethren without a cause. Tremendous parallel, you see, friends. We'll follow that on down as we follow the story now of Joseph. And verse 20, "'Come now therefore and let us slay him, cast him into some pit, and we'll say,' Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Now, Reuben here, who has already lost his position as the firstborn, it'll be transferred to Judah. But Reuben actually stands out in a good light here. He has more mature judgment than the others. And verse 21 I'm reading, and Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, "'Let us not kill him.'" They would have slain him right there and then. But Reuben intervened, and he rescued him and said, "'Look, brethren, let's not kill him.'" And Reuben said unto them, "'Shed no blood, but cast him into the pit that's in the wilderness. Lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again.'" Now, it was Reuben's avowed purpose that when he was put in the pit, that he would slip back and take him out of the pit and take him home to his father and tell him what had happened. But when he was put in the pit, it came to pass, verse 23, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. In other words, that coat was like waving a red flag in front of a bull because They hated him. That set him apart from them, and they certainly didn't like that by any means, because several of them, according to the law of primogeniture, that is, that the elder has prior claim, why there were several of them that were older than he was, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it, and they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. These were traders that were going by. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? In other words, Judah now intervenes, it doesn't seem to be a very good plan of his, but at least he doesn't want murder to take place and he doesn't want the blood to be on the hands of the brothers of Joseph. And he makes this suggestion, Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh and his brethren were content. Well, they said, what we want to do is to get rid of him. And if we sell him to these Ishmaelites, they'll take him down to Egypt. That's where they go and sell him into slavery. And that, to us, is just the same. It's getting rid of him. And slavery, in many places, was a living death anyway. Certainly, they'd never hear from him again. And so we read verse 28, "...then they passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew..." lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, I'm sure that at this point you are saying, well, Moses, make up your mind. You called them Ishmaelites at first, then you called them Midianites, now you come back and call them Ishmaelites again. What are they? And isn't this an error in the Bible? I was handed many years ago now by a student, and it had been handed to him a little blue paperback book that showed, I think, a 1,000 or 2,000 errors in the Bible. I looked it over. I never found any errors except in that little book, and one of the errors was here. that one place it says Ishmaelites, another place Midianites, which is accurate. Well, let's look at this for a moment, because this is quite interesting, and it reveals how the critic and those that hate the Bible, how they can manufacture actually that which reveals something of the accuracy of it. Now, who were the Ishmaelites? Who was the father of the Ishmaelites? Abraham. Who's the father of the Midianites? Well, Abraham. You see, Ishmael was the son of Abraham by Hagar. Midian was a son of Abraham by Keturah that he married after the death of Sarah. Now, these are brethren, actually, Ishmaelites and Midianites. And they're akin to this crowd here, of boys that are selling their brother, too, by the way. And after all, at this particular time, even an Israelite, there are not but 12 of them. And how many Ishmaelites do you think there'd be at this time? I doubt whether there'd be over a hundred of them, that is, of all of them. And Midianites, how many of them would it be? Midian was born after Isaac was born, so that there could not probably have been maybe a dozen Midianites. Well, with the small groups like that, tribes in that day, and they're related, and the desert was uh, traveling to Egypt, at least in that day, was dangerous, so they just joined together. And what Moses is trying to make clear to us as we read this is that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites had joined together, small band of each, made them stronger, and they're related, they understand each other, so they're on the way down to Egypt to do business. May I say that the Word of God makes good sense if you just let it make good sense. We are the folk that don't make good sense with it, And of course, ignorance adds a great deal to the contradictions that people think they find. The contradiction is not in the Bible, but it's in the ignorance of people who read. And this, of course, is a good example. You can see how whoever wrote this knew exactly what the situation was in that day. Now, they sell Joseph, and they're taking Joseph down to the land of Egypt. And verse 29, And Reuben returned unto the pit, and, behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes. He returned unto his brethren, and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat, and killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the coat in the blood. Now, whether they brought Reuben in on this I don't know. I'm of the opinion they did. I think they said, well, we sold him into Egypt, and he's halfway down there now. So they've got now to get some sort of a cock and bull story to tell old Jacob about what happened to Joseph. Now, what do they do? They took Joseph's coat, and they killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, "'This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no.'" Pretty clever, isn't it? Why, they act as if they never seen Joseph. All that they knew, according to their story, which is a lie, they said, "'Why, we found this coat.'" And believe me, they knew that coat. They hated that coat. And they say, "'Why, we don't recognize the coat, but do you recognize it? Could this be the coat of your son?' Believe me, Jacob knew whose coat it was, and he knew it and said, It's my son's coat, An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. This is the conclusion and the natural conclusion that he would come to and the conclusion that these other sons of Jacob intended for him to. But let's pause now a moment take a look at this. Does this matter of deceiving the father with a goat, does that remind you of anything that we've had before? Well, if you'll just think about this for a few moments, do you recall that when Jacob was a young fellow, he and his mother connived together to deceive Isaac, and the thing they did was they killed a goat, and they cooked it up, you know, made him savory meat to eat, And then they took the skins of the goat and put it on the hands of Jacob. And he went in and deceived his father. And the thing has to do with a goat. (laughs) Now, the brethren of Joseph, sons of Jacob now, they kill a goat. They dip the coat of many colors in the blood, and they come and hand it. To old Jacob and said, Do you recognize it? Jacob said, I sure do. I said, so We found it up there. Looks like a wild beast or something must have got to him. Something happened to him. And old Jacob came to the conclusion that his boy's been killed. He's been deceived. Will you listen to this? He is deceived in the very way that he had deceived. Chickens come home to roost. The Word of God says and says it very specifically, "...be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap." Not something else, not something similar, but the same thing. If you sow to the flesh, you will love the flesh, reap corruption. This man Jacob did some bad sowing. He used deception. And in the same way in which... He deceived his father. When he became a father, he's deceived in the identical way. You see, when you sow corn, you get corn. When you sow tares, you get tares. You get exactly what you sow. That's true in any realm. You care to move it today. And it's certainly true in the moral and spiritual realm. And that's true today of any believer. If you think you can get by with sin and you're a child of God, you have another thought coming. In fact, you better take that other thought and not do the thing, because God is no respecter of persons. He said this is the way it's going to be, and just because you are you, you don't get by with it. I talked to a minister, oh, this has been now at least five years ago, that got involved with another man's wife. It was a sordid story. As I talked with him, he tried to justify himself on the basis that he was something special of the Lord's, that because he was who he was, he operated on a different plane and by a different rule book than anyone else. May I say, God's no respect to a person. The very way in which this fellow had sinned, it'd come home to him. God says you don't get by with it at all. If you sin in this direction, the day will come. It took it a long time for the chickens to come home to roost, but they came home to roost for this man. Now, will you notice the grief of Jacob? And this is something else to note at this point. And Jacob rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I'll go down into the grave under my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And somebody is going to say, my, isn't that a demonstration of how much he loved his son Joseph? Well, I'll have to admit he certainly loved his son Joseph. But this man has not learned to walk by faith yet friends. You remember the experience he had at Peniel. It was the deflation of the old ego, perpendicular pronoun I. The flesh collapsed there. But now he's got to learn to walk by faith. And he hadn't learned it. And he hasn't learned it at this point. You'll notice when you get to the 11th chapter of Hebrews and the example of faith of Jacob, you find nothing in his life It's not until you get to the time of his death that you find faith really exhibited in his life. And if you want to know whether this is an exhibit of faith or not, compare the grief of this man to David at the weeping for his son and also of his weeping over Absalom. Now, David loved his son Absalom and loved that little one that was born just as much As Jacob loved his son, Joseph, but he also was a man of faith. And after he had grieved, he went on. He knew someday, he said concerning that little one, he said, that little one can't come back to me. That's for sure. My grieving won't help their bit. But I'm going to the little one someday. What faith? Poor Jacob, you see, it's not walking by faith, friends. This is abnormal grief. And Christian friend, and I'm talking, I'm sure, to some folk, you've lost a loved one, you can't get over it. I want to say to you, not brutally, but kindly, learn to walk by faith. You manifest the Christian life when you recognize that you can't bring that one back and your grieving is doing no good at all. But if the one you're grieving of is a child of God, you're a child of God, then walk by faith. You're going to see that one someday. And you're going to see that one and never be separated. Now, look, can't you walk by faith? Don't exhibit that lack of faith that is in the people of the world. And that's the way they grieve today. Now, we read verse 36, the last verse here. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt under Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Now, we're going to leave Joseph right there, and we'll pick up his story in chapter 39. But we come to chapter 38. Again, another chapter that seems to be about as necessary as a fifth leg on a cow. You just don't seem to need chapter 38 at all. And after you read the story, you rather wish it was left out of the Bible. I've had any number of people say, well, why is that chapter put in the Bible? May I say chapter 38 is the worst chapter in the Bible. We'll take that up next time and go into not too much detail, but some. But there's some names here. It's the sin of Judah, actually. It's the sin and the shame of Judah. And Judah is going to be the one the tribe out of which the Messiah is coming. And there are some names that appear here that are quite interesting. And you find a name like Judah, and then you find a name like Tamar, and you say, my, I've seen these names before. wonder where it was I saw them. Well, now, if you would turn to the first chapter of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, you read a genealogy there. And it's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find out Judah begat fairies of Zarah of Tamar. And of all things, you say, well, you mean to tell me this is the line of the Lord Jesus? Yes, friends, it happens to be the line that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing thing, isn't it, that this reveals the awful sin and the Lord Jesus came in that line, friends. He really took our place down here, didn't he? He came into a sinful line. That's what the Word of God's trying to tell us. He was made in all points like as we are, yet he himself sin apart. But he came into that line, that human line, where all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We'll see that chapter next time.